1 Samuel chapter 4. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer. And the Philistines encamped in Aphek. Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh, that they might bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. Now when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp. So the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. There was a very great slaughter, and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Also, the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. Then a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line the same day and came to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. Now when he came, there was Eli sitting on a seat by the wayside watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out, When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, What does the sound of this tumult mean? And the man came quickly and told Eli. Eli was ninety-eight years old, and his eyes were so dim that he could not see. Then the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle, and I fled today from the battle line. And he said, What happened, my son? So the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has been a great slaughter among the people. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the Ark of God has been captured. Then it happened, when he made mention of the Ark of God, that Eli fell off the seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy, and he had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, Phinehas' wife, was with child, due to be delivered. And when she heard the news that the Ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, She bowed herself and gave birth, for her labor pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women who stood by her said to her, Do not fear, for you have born a son. But she did not answer, nor did she regard it. Then she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would open our minds to understand what you would have us to understand. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you are sovereign and rule over heaven and earth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Any of you who have excellent memories, this might be familiar because I spoke on it about 10 years ago. What the uh, Israelites did here was uh, made a mistake. They thought their God lived in a box. Now, it was a beautiful box, God's design. It was overlaid with gold, and it has those cherubim over it, the the wings outspreading. And it was said later in our text that God dwelled between those cherubim. But this box was designed to be carried. And this was, again, by God's design. Yet the, uh, the Israelites figured that that meant that they could then carry their God around, portable omnipotence. They could just take him to where they wanted to deploy him and use him like a cannon against their enemies, hook it up behind their Hummer and take it off into the battlefield. So in verse 3, not only did they think their God lived in the box, they confused their box with their God because it says that when it comes among us, it may save us. So they refer to their God as an it. Now this is irreverent and shocking, and yet... Uh, we do much the same thing in our world, in our culture. A uh, long time ago, soon after we moved here, we went over to Council Bluffs to the Dodge House Museum, and we toured it. And as we toured it, there was a bedroom that's roped off, and there was an end table next to the bed, and there was a beaver hat sitting on it, just like President Lincoln would have worn. And I couldn't help but touch it. It was right there in reach. So I reached out and I stroked it, and it just felt like I could put it on. I mean, it was hard, solid. Uh, the, the oil of the beaver skin was still there. It was a beautiful hat. And yet, if I were to so take a liking to that hat that I would want to start wearing one around town, I think people would make fun of me. They wouldn't think it appropriate, me wearing a top hat around town. It fit in 150 years ago, yet it doesn't fit in anymore. And so being a biblical Christian today is kind of like wearing that top hat around. People love talking about God, but they really don't want to hear about how you take the Bible and apply it to your life. People might be comfortable wearing ball caps or no caps. Maybe they wear a top hat to church, but then as soon as they get home, they put it back in the closet. But yet everybody seems to like to wear top hats to weddings and funerals. Everybody seems to like to pull God out of his box, bring him along to their wedding and funeral. And so before a wedding and a funeral, it's like, honey, where's my top hat? You know, I know I've put God in here somewhere. I need to get him out. I need to put him to use. Now, to get back to our text a little bit, what is the first thing you ask your kids when you find them fighting? Anybody know? Who started it? So, with our transition back to the text, who started it? Who started this battle between the Philistines and the Israelites? Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. I believe the Israelites started it. In verse 9, it says that they had been subject to the Philistines because the Philistines were saying, you don't want to be subject to them now as they are subject to you. So Israel has been subject to the Philistines for some time. And yet, they're going out into a battle which they're unprepared to fight. They had not inspected their cannon, so to speak, before they went into this battle with the Philistines. And so we go into battle unprepared. Uh, 
uh, we were we referred to uh, life as war earlier in the communion meditation, and it is Christian life, spiritual life is war. Paul regarded that metaphor; it's almost more popular than any other that he uses. So we enter into our days unprepared. We don't do a devotion. We don't read the Word. We don't pray. These are just things that we become habitually uh, inclined towards. And so we're like the Israelites then. We're fading away from the proper understanding of of God and what he would have us to do. So we must do these things necessary to fight in these battles. Now, they went out into battle unprepared. What's worse? What's worse than not going into battle unprepared? I gave you the answer without the last word. Not going into battle. We need to battle. There's the war on. But yet we just might choose to not fight today. We don't want to fight today. We're tired of fighting. We're tired of this war. We don't want to be at war anymore. And so we stay home. An example of this might be that when we have failure in our lives, spiritual, you know, earthly, whatever that failure is, instead of going to God for a sucker, we might go to a remote control to while our evening away. We might stay up late and then thus not get up early. And so now we're sleeping in. And then throughout the day, we might be uh, finding ourselves content with idleness. These are things that uh, we talk of as depression. Well, but you're responsible to control that. You're responsible to fight against such things. So when we are licked in a battle, we need to return to the war. We need to take this seriously. We need to go back to God. So when we don't fight... We give the battlefield to the Philistines. We cast down our swords and refuse to fight. We say, not today. So essentially, we're deserters. And if you've read the Red Badge of Courage, you know that the the book is basically two parts. There's the part in the beginning where he's the deserter. He flees, but then he returns to the battle. And that's what we need to do. Now, let me share a good story about a brief fight. Once upon a time, all good stories start with that. A few people witnessed to a man, and they were like a small group, and and they had this unbeliever in their midst, and so it was fresh meat. So he kept coming back, and they kept hammering at him. And after weeks and weeks and weeks of this, him coming back to their group and them continuing to do this, uh, he became a believer. And so the people were pretty happy. They were pretty proud of themselves, and they asked him, well, you know, what did we do that succeeded? And he said, well, your arguments were pitiful. I had fought much better believers elsewhere. But you just wouldn't let it go. You wouldn't let it go. You kept on fighting. In all other uh, battles with Christians, I'd always cow them into silence. They'd just basically tolerate me until I'd leave of my own accord. He said, but you kept fighting me. So this he attributed to God. This was God at work in them, overcoming their unwillingness to put up with this humiliating defeat week after week. Now, we ourselves can't win anything we can't achieve victory but god can what god calls us to do is fight so we can't achieve victory only god can but we must fight every day life is war now israel fought but why why did they fight what was their motivation you know were they indignant that the philistines had invaded their promised land given to them by god or Were they upset that people were stealing and destroying their crops? Now, both are valid reasons for getting upset, of course, but I believe the former is what they really needed to have highest on their list as reasons to be upset with the Philistines. 
because these were uncircumcised people violating their land. And they were uh, allowing this to happen and they were not doing what they needed to do in order to overcome this. So yet they're both valid reasons, but yet I believe they were much more concerned about the humiliating defeats. And this leads later to them wanting kings because they want to be like the countries around them. So we must question our motives for fighting. Are we fighting to defend our honor or God's honor? Are we fighting to propagate God's truth or our truth? And are we fighting to glorify God or ourselves? Now, Israel is defeated in the battle. The people return to the camp, and it's in verse 3. The people had come into the camp. The elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? That is an excellent question. Have you seen I, Robot? That's probably my favorite question. And that's an excellent question. Now you're asking the right question. And yet, what do they do? This question presupposes two very important things. First, it was God that defeated them, not the Philistines. Why has God defeated us? So all adversity in our life is by God's design. If God wanted you to have a good day without any troubles whatsoever, he'd give you that good day without any troubles whatsoever. But sometimes he doesn't want you to have that perfect day. He wants you to go through the adversities of life. It's necessary. God wants us to do that. Second, their question presupposes a reason behind their having been defeated. There was a reason for it. So what was the reason? May we be so astute to ask when we're defeated what was the reason. They asked the question. But what do they do? Do they answer their question? They don't. Listen to it again. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us. It's irrational. It's irrational. They go from this really good question that gave these two premises that I said is in their minds and to a total leap of a solution that is outrageous. And yet, uh, Cornelius Van Til says, the greater the unbelief of a people, the more irrational is their behavior. This is irrational behavior. These are unbelieving people. They're jumping to a conclusion that's unwarranted. It's a crazy plan. Now, so far, we've covered three errors that they've made. They confused their God for a box. They went into battle unprepared. And they didn't answer this question, a very good question that they asked. But let me address three more errors that they made. First, the Israelites assume that God wants them to win the battle. That's just unspoken. They know God wants them to win the battle. They're his chosen people. You know, They don't push for answers to the question they asked. Why has the Lord defeated us today? Note the question carefully. Why has the Lord defeated us? Is it addressed to God? No, it's not. They're addressing it to one another. Why has the Lord defeated us today? You know, they're not asking God. They're asking one another. And why is that, that they would be asking one another the question as opposed to God? Because they don't have a relationship with God. They don't ask God anything. They tell God things. They don't ask him things. Now, they're used to making decisions without God. And when they use God's name, they're no more speaking to God than is a construction worker when he hits his thumb and he yells out God's name. That's the degree to which they're speaking to God. So their faith is dead. It's a symbolic faith. It's a rhetorical faith. Let me give you an illustration. In, uh, in 1996, uh, these uh, 
these groups ran into trouble on Mount Everest. And a book was written called Into Thin Air. And one of the men that survived that trip was a man by the name of Beck Weathers. He was a physician from Texas. He was left for dead twice on that mountain. And a very, very funny guy. Uh, His hands froze. His ears froze off. His face froze. It was all black. At one point in the hospital, they were growing a new nose, and they had it attached to his forehead upside down. And he said that, more than anything, told him who his friends were. Because when his friends came into the room, they immediately pointed at it and laughed him to scorn. And yet the acquaintances came in and tried not to look at it, you know. (laughs) So it immediately separated his friends from his acquaintances. So now one interesting thing, though, that happened was a doctor came to him in Texas and x-rayed his hands. And he said, Beck, I have really bad news for you. He said, your hands are dead. He said, you probably, this hand is gone. And the other hand, you might get operation, partial operation of three fingers. And yet, Beck Weathers is looking at his hands, and they work, but they're dead. They work, but they're dead. The ligaments were attached to the muscles in his forearm, and they could still actuate his fingers, but his fingers were dead. They were going to fall off. It was just a matter of time. And so, see, people like that who are dead fill our churches, and churches like that fill our land, and we see them at weddings and funerals. Second, that's the first error. They assume God wanted them to win the battle. Second, they think the box just needs to be a little bit closer. It's just too far away, way back there in Shiloh. So they need to bring it closer to Ebenezer, closer to the front. It reminds me of when the Jews were coming up out of Egypt and Balak called Balaam, come curse these people. And we're going to actually begin the communion meditations next week on that uh, text but he calls them to come, and when Balak doesn't, doesn't curse them and he blesses them, Balak's like, whoa, come, come over here. You know, and he takes them to a new vantage point, like as if from there he can curse them. It, you know, there's this kind of superstitious nature related to things like this. So he just thinks he's got to get all the moons lined up, all the places lined up. Well, that just isn't how it works. This box containing their god was like a big lucky charm. They just needed to bring it closer to the front, you know, where they can apply their God to their big problem here. They just whipped their lucky charm out. And in part, it worked. You know, we'll get to that in a bit. So now third, second error, they think the box just needs to be closer. And third, they rely upon a vile Hophni and Phinehas to do their bidding. Now, if you've read 1 Samuel chapter 1, 2, and 3, you'll know who Hophni and Phinehas are. They're horrible sons of Eli. Now, for years, they have corrupted the tabernacle service. They are very corrupt priests. They instituted uh, uh, prostitutes at the door of the temple, just lots of horrible things. And now, many years earlier, when Samuel was a boy, that was his first vision. That was his first time God talked to him, and it was about God eventually taking out Hophni and Phinehas. And so Eli, their father, has known about this for years, and earlier the people would complain bitterly to Eli, saying, your sons are doing this, your sons are doing this. Now the people have put them at the head of the parade, taking the ark out of Shiloh. So in that brief time, these people have gone from hating evil to embracing these evil priests. They've been converted. And let me give you a good illustration of this. In 1997, in our country, in our day, in 1997, the House of Representatives came within one vote of zeroing out funding for the National Endowment of the Arts. One vote away. 
And yet, seven years later, President Bush expanded their funding by $20 million. In seven years, the conservative movement that had so been upset with Clinton when he'd suggested increasing funding for NEA, uh, in seven years, they go to supporting a president who adds $20 million to the budget. It just goes to show you how fast, how quickly we can embrace these things as a culture. What, what upset us ten years ago no longer upsets us as much ten years later. In, uh, in the early 1900s, there was a man named G.K. Chesterton, and he has a quote that is just so good. Now, in his day, progressives were the liberals, and yet the conservatives tag still applies. And this is what he said. The whole modern world has divided itself into conservatives and progressives. The business of progressives is to go on making mistakes. The business of conservatives is to prevent mistakes from ever being corrected. Even when the revolutionist himself repents of his revolution, the traditionalist is already defending it as a part of his tradition. Thus, we have two great types, the advanced person who rushes us into ruin and the retrospective person who admires and protects the ruins. That's our culture. That's, that's the liberals and conservatives. Now, let's look at what happened when the ark came to the front. First, we'll talk about the Israeli response. And this is in verse 5. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. That is enthusiasm for religion. And yet we see it in the New Testament too, you know, with the goddess of Diana, goddess of Diana, for two hours chanting down Paul. So there is no lack of enthusiasm for bad religions on this earth. We know it when we read the news with what's going on in, in the Hindu lands and the Muslim lands. No, no shortage of enthusiasm. Now, the Philistine response is really interesting. The Philistines heard the noise of the shout. They said, what does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. So the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Now, they could always refer to God as the singular and maybe be better. They, they deserve some catechizing. But they're afraid of God. They're afraid of the God who brought the Israelis up out of Egypt. And that was almost 200 years ago. And yet they're afraid. And the Jews aren't afraid. They no longer reverence their God like the Philistines are. Now, I believe what happens between verse 8 and 9 is interesting because I ended at the end of verse 8. Verse 9, it says, be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines. In the same way earlier that I mentioned that there was this irrational aspect to where the, the, the elders of Israel jumped to a conclusion, I believe God himself encourages these weak-kneed Philistines. They are shaking in fear. Yet, the very next thing, be strong and courageous, that's from God. That, that is the spirit. Spirit of God giving these Philistines courage to do God's will on the earth. And that is to deal his children a rebuke. The battle is joined and a loss turns into a rout. 30,000 soldiers fall. Earlier, like three or 4,000 fell. Earlier, they had returned to their camp. Now, they flee to their tents. It reminds me of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Run away, run away, run away. And yet, 
People died, right? I mean, so maybe I shouldn't joke about stuff like this. People died. Um, and let me share something with you. Uh, yesterday, I got an email from a friend in Denver. And uh, he lived in Denver at the time of Columbine. So he wrote to me asking me about how my family was in light of this mall uh, tragedy. And uh, I wrote back to him. And I said, uh, now I know what the other towns feel like. Or at least, I guess, Christians in the other town. But I said, honestly, I don't really feel any different. It hasn't uh, challenged my worldview even a little bit. Sure, it's geographically closer. I drove past this morning and I could see the windows and there are papers pasted all over the front windows at Von Mar to commemorate this, you know, to, to, to just people sharing their grief. So I can feel for these people who have suffered this. But yet, this is no different. When I was in the service, um, a guy went into a McDonald's down in San Diego and killed 32 people with a weapon. Uh, this is no different to me. Now, if I'd had family or friends killed in this, then obviously there's a personal aspect to it. But I'm talking about the spiritual worldview. This has rocked people's worlds here. And that's because their worlds are built on sand. It's because they don't know God. It's because they need to know the truth. The first person born into this world was a murderer. Murder doesn't surprise me. You know, I mean, actually, I'm just more shocked that more people aren't murdered. I know how angry I get at people, and I'm a Christian, and I should know better. Now, let's look at Eli and his sons a little closer. I believe Eli and his sons are a metaphor for the modern church. Eli represents the true believers, and the sons represent the liberal, unbelieving masses that, for some reason, go to church. I guess it makes them feel better. Now, in verse 15, Eli is described as 98 years old. And so his great age denotes frailty. He tires easily, tasks himself lightly because he knows his limitations. He knows this and he has grown accustomed to them. Now, the true church is frail and weak in our society, in our day. We have no strength for mighty works. We know this. We don't attempt them. In verse 15, Eli is blind. He is unaware of much that is going on around him. He waits for word at the gates, but people pass him by. He is irrelevant. Likewise, the church is blind to what is going on in large part, and we are irrelevant in society. We stand at the gates, but people ignore us. They pass us by. In verse 18, Eli is described as heavy. He has grown heavy over his long life, and this is too much feeding of himself and not enough feeding of his flock, not enough reining in of his children. And yet, now of the sons, I think really little needs to be said. They are uh, living in total disregard for God and his word. They live for pleasure. That's all they live for. They steal from the flocks, and they sleep with prostitutes in the temple. They are desecrating God. They are not lifting God up for people to see. And so that's just like godless liberal churches these days. They steal spiritual food from the people and give them demons in return. They sleep with false gods right in their pulpits and they deny the true God. They deny his earthly spiritual authority. They attempt to usurp it. Now, let's look closer at Eli though, because like I said, he's the true church. There is yet a wonderful lesson in what we see in the life of Eli. Bitter news comes via the runner. Eli is waiting there at the gate. So, that's our first lesson. Eli is waiting at the gate for word. He's paying attention to the circumstances. Even if people are ignoring us, we must not be ignoring them. 
So in the midst of turmoil, we Christians are to keep our heads. If we know people involved in this small tragedy, let's talk to them about it. Let's tell them that Cain was a murderer, that murder is nothing new on the earth, and taking guns away from law-abiding citizens isn't going to help the matter one bit. We are to pay attention to these things because God wants us to be deployed. He wants us to be doing his work. Now, what should we talk to people about? I've mentioned some, but also we need to minister to one another. Many of us might be shocked by such things. It might rock our world. And that just reflects the fact that our foundation perhaps also isn't entirely built on the rock that it needs to be built on. So now we learn more, though, from observing Eli. The runner says, Israel has fled before the Philistines and there has been a great slaughter among the people. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the ark of God has been captured. At the words, Israel has fled, Eli is not moved. His national pride means very little to him. At the words, there has been a great slaughter among the people, Eli is not moved. 30,000 people died, yet it didn't rock his world. Soldiers die. People die. Even at the words, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, Eli is not moved. Eli knows God. He's a true believer. And he knows that his sons were evil. He knows God had promised to take them out. And eventually he did. He's, he, God was very patient. But eventually he did do what he had promised. But when he hears the words, the ark of God has been captured. He falls over, breaks his neck, and dies. So it was for the ark that he had been waiting at the gate for news. It was for the ark that he had trembled with fear as long as it was outside of the city limits of Shiloh. It was not for the ark as his son and the people viewed it, obviously. It was not for this big lucky charm that had been carted off, this portable cannon to be deployed against their enemies. It was for what the ark meant. The ark was the presence of God in their midst. The ark was the promise of God for their culture and their future. For hundreds of years, since they came up out of Egypt, this ark has been in Shiloh. And he had been the one, the last one under which it had now left the city. The presence of the ark symbolized the presence of God. And now God was gone. Its absence symbolized God's absence. Now, the loss of the ark reflected God abandoning his chosen people. This is why Eli was heartbroken. Not because the ark wasn't with them, but because God wasn't with them. In the flood of Noah, all mankind died, except for those eight people that were saved by the boat. And now in this battle with the Philistines, we see God's chosen people being given over to the Philistines. And he did that with the Jews more than once. And then he abandoned them to, to their, to their self-imposed penalty. Yet, from all the peoples of the earth, God has formed a nation, a special people, his people. We even sang about it earlier. Um, Come and rejoice, O holy nation. The, the Christian church is a nation of which we are a component on this earth. So let's not get wrapped around the axle about being Americans because God might abandon America one day as he has abandoned Europe. And so God uh, will not abandon us. He will not abandon his nation. We've seen examples through history of God abandoning nations, and yet we are the holy nation. It is us that will never be abandoned. And yet why? Why is it that God would never abandon us? And the proof is in having to answer the question that Christ asked on the cross. What was the question? 
that Christ asked on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this was a fulfillment of uh, a prophecy from Psalms. And what's the answer? Christ was forsaken so that we, his nation, would never be forsaken. And that's the reality we live in. All tragedies don't concern me. Because when I leave this earth, I go to my Father in heaven. And so I hope all of us have that hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love for us. And Lord, the fact that you did knit us together, that while we were enemies, uh, Christ died for us. Christ died such that we would not have to die and be separated from you forever. Lord, we ask you to be with us. We pray for those who couldn't make it. Pray that you would keep us safe, Father, and in your care. In Christ's name we pray.